You've probably had this happen. Oftentimes when I'm out of town and I tell somebody that I live in Emmett, they'll say, oh, it's really beautiful over there, or I just love it over in Emmett. And then they'll tell you about maybe going to the Cherry Festival sometime or how they used to come over to buy fruit and, or just enjoyed coming over for a drive as they were coming this way and how great it is to come over the hill and see the Squaw Butte towering over the valley. That is, unless you get a ticket for not slowing down to 50 mi 55 miles per hour. Heard a lot of those stories as well. You know, I've had people come over from Boise and as soon as they get here they said, I, I got a ticket coming over there. Yeah, but we are blessed to live in a beautiful place. The beauty of the valley, the beauty of Squaw Butte changes with the seasons from the white powdered snow. Have you ever seen that where it's just got powdered snow on it and this blue behind it and then the clouds? And, or, or the green of spring, that little bit of green that we get in the spring. And then other times the, the landscape is constantly changing. But winter can also be another story, as we know. Especially when we have a temperature inversion and it's colder than normal in the valleys and it's warmer in the mountains and that dense fog fills in those grayish brown dry hills and you can't see to the end of your yard. I don't like the fog. I don't think anybody does. It makes everything seem dreary. It obscures the beauty and the, prevents much of the light from shining through. It's dangerous to drive in. Several years ago, I drove to the Boise airport to pick up my son, who was flying in for Christmas from Chicago. And the fog wasn't too bad until I arrived at the airport, and then it started to settle in very quickly. And then after circling over Boise for several minutes, my son's flight was diverted to Salt Lake City, where he had to spend the night. So I decided to drive back home to Payette, where we were living at the time. I'd come back the next morning and pick him up. And so I was leaving the airport. It was just really too foggy to see anything. And I was just getting ready to turn left and then another left to get on the interstate. You know how that works. And I couldn't see more than 20 or 30 feet in front of me. And I couldn't even see any lights except uh, the traffic light right in front of me, just kind of. And I couldn't even hardly see the street. And I knew by faith that instead of turning left, I could go straight because there was a Best Western Motel up there on the right-hand side a little ways. I couldn't remember how much the road turned or anything. It didn't turn as much that time as it does now. Now you go this way and back around right before you get to that intersection that has 12,000 cars coming six different directions. <laughs> but at least at that time, I knew that the Best Western was straight ahead someplace. So I drove slowly, very slowly a few yards and could finally see the lights of the Best Western Motel. I checked in for the night, and I called Jan and explained why I wasn't going to get home that night. And then I picked up my son at the airport the next morning, and we drove home. At least that time, it was clear as to what I should do until the fog lifted. On another occasion, while driving to the Boise Airport in the fog, I was driving in the daytime, but the fog was thick most of the way, and there was snow on the road, and it was pretty much a whiteout, and it was very hard to see. And I, I was driving at comfort, comfortable speed, and I could see these taillights in front of me. I could see two different cars, two different taillights of what I thought were two different cars going, and I kind of wondered why they, one was driving in one lane and one was driving in the other. You know, it just seemed really weird. And as I got closer to him, following these two taillights, thinking, you know, I, I think I'm pretty safe here, but it's, it's, it's kind of odd. It just must be the fog. 
And then as I got closer and it went around the corner, I discovered it was four taillights on the back bumper of a semi-tractor. You know, <laughs> and so I was a lot closer than I thought I was. And I go, oh, the dangerous, icy road, you know, that was really stupid. But what do you do? It's just that weird, weird feeling. Now, God gave certain spiritual gifts to certain believers to help us penetrate through the fog spiritually. To help us penetrate the fog of deceit, of delusion, those things that are dangerous. And then we have a natural inability to see things as they really are. To see truth for what it is and to see falsehood for what it is. To see clearly what should be done and what shouldn't be done as we seek to obey Christ in all things. And so the Holy Spirit provides the spiritual gifts of the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, and discernment to cut through the fog and help us as the body of Christ to see things as they really are. So please look once again at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. The first gift that we're going to be looking at is the word of knowledge. We read of the gift of the word of knowledge here in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. It says it's a word of knowledge, literally a logos of knowledge. Remember that? In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word, the logos with wisdom. Well, it calls it a logos of knowledge because it's a speaking gift. Uh, literally, it's the utterance, the speaking of knowledge, the logos of knowledge. And here the word logos can mean a word that is spoken or a saying that is spoken. It can even be that which is written on a page, spoken to a crowd or spoken privately to individuals. So what is the gift? It's speaking or writing a word of knowledge. And this is a special gift. As the Holy Spirit gives us the gift and then works in us and through us, the Holy Spirit's prompting how he leads us and guides us. He's working in certain individuals with a special gift of being able to speak and write knowledge. Now, every believer, every one of us as believers, is called by God to obtain and grow in knowledge. The Apostle Peter, when he warned his readers about the fog and the smoke screen of false teachers and the threat that their words bring, listened to what he wrote in his second letter. He said, You therefore, beloved, know it, know, beloved knowing this beforehand, be on your guards so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness. But what? Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Grow in knowledge. This is the responsibility of every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ. We are to grow in knowledge of Christ and his word. We are to study God's word. We are to listen to those who teach us God's word. Because people who are biblically ignorant of the word of God or what? They're easy pickings for all kinds of false teachers and all kinds of things that float around and are taught. So John warned in his first letter, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. So how does the gift of knowledge differ from the attainment of knowledge that is the responsibility of every one of us as believers? The gift of the word of knowledge is an intensification of knowing and receiving knowledge. 
So I put this in your outline. The gift of speaking knowledge is the Spirit-given ability to observe biblical facts and make conclusions. The Spirit-given ability to observe biblical facts and make conclusions. We're all called to do that, but with those with the gift, they have an intense ability given by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in them and through them and giving their gift, to obtain biblical knowledge and speak it through the spoken word or to speak it in writing. In fact, the book that we're studying at our men's breakfast is a good example of a book written by a man who has the gift of the word of knowledge. In the book, maybe you've seen it, ladies, you've seen it sitting out there on the table. It's a thick book, about 523 pages, and it's called Bible Doctrine, Essential Teachings of the Christian Faith by Wade Gruden. And you might be happy to know, and uh, Chris showed us the big book, uh, it's an edited out version of his book, Systematic Theology, which is 714 pages longer. Men and women with the gift of knowledge take all these different biblical truths, take all these different scripture passages, and they put them together, and they come up with insightful conclusions about the truth as they speak and write the truth. And this is the kind of gift that is basic and bottom line for biblical interpretation. Those of us who do biblical interpretation, interpret God's word or do exegesis of God's word, you know, we're totally dependent upon these guys because they write these big, thick books and, and get into Bible history and Bible doctrine and archaeology that uh, we'd never have the opportunity to do that ourselves. And I think of people like uh, Dr. Fred Young at Central Baptist Seminary. He was my professor of Old Testament at the time in Hebrew. He was dean of, of the students as well. But Dr. Young had been to Israel umpteen million times. <laughs> I don't even know. You know, at least 80 times he'd, he'd been to Israel. And he was fluent in 26 Semitic languages. And people like this get their PhDs. He was fluent. You know, he knew Ugaritic, Sanskrit, cuneiform, you know, all these things and how they wrote in, in the ancient world, just in that part of the world. These aren't the Romance languages like Latin and Italian and, and English and those. These are the... the you know, that, that part of the world. And, and, and these gifted men and women, they go out and they collect biblical truth and they understand this and that in the Hebrew and the Greek and they, they know about history and they've studied it and archaeology and they, they see a little thing here and a little deal there and they put it all together in collecting these, these biblical facts and they, they come to conclusions which can later be translated into practical insights and information. And this is a vital area in understanding God's Word, understanding the Bible. And those of us who are preachers and teachers and love to study in-depth in Scripture, we're utterly dependent upon those who have the gift of the Word of knowledge. You know, I think of Alfred Edersheim's The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, that, that classic book. And uh, in fact, my main hobby is reading their stuff. <laughs> But there are different kinds, all kinds of different ways the gift of the word of knowledge is manifested. It can belong to people, and it does, to people right here in our local congregation, in our church family. You've never been to college, you've never been to seminary, but you have the ability to study the Bible, to draw out facts, and make conclusions by observing. And so it's a tremendous gift. And uh, like all the gifts, it comes in many different energizings, literally, many different workings. We get the word uh, energy from, from the Greek word. 
And it could be 100 people with the, the same gift, the gift of the word of knowledge, and it works out differently in their lives. It, it might be a combination of a little bit of wisdom mixed in, a little bit of knowledge kind of sort of splattered around in their gift mix. But when a believer's gift mix has the gift of knowledge, we rejoice in the way that they serve the body of Christ. They give us knowledge about Christ and his word. And through their leading of the Holy Spirit, they get insights about people and events and other things that the rest of us go, huh? <laughs> you know, but uh, they, they just have that ability. They can talk to somebody. They meet somebody. And after talking to them for a little while, they can, they can see how God's word is working in their life or should work in their life. How that knowledge. And uh, basically, they, they, they have things that we would never figure out on our own for those of us who don't have that, that gift. And so we need them because uh, they have put in the time and the research necessary to understand the mysteries of God, how God works through his spirit. And related to the gift of the word of knowledge, there's the gift of the word of wisdom. Those who are able to write and speak wisdom. And uh, this gift differs from knowledge in this way. The emphasis is on the skill of application rather than the knowledge of the facts. How do you apply the facts? How do you apply the knowledge uh, to your life and how do other people apply it to their life? And so wisdom is the ability to take the facts that the gift of knowledge has brought out and make a skillful application of them. Uh, this could belong to a Christian counselor who sees a problem and by his or her knowledge of the word of God, they draw out principles which can be practically applied to solving the problem. Uh, this is the gift of the, the one who expounds God's word, the Bible expositor, who, who can take the word of God and study the commentaries and the other works that other people have written. And, and from all those who have the gift of knowledge, wisdom draws out the applicable principles for living by God's word. So this can be something that a believer ministers to another believer in the area of assisting in his or her practical Christian life or if they're going through a problem or a struggle or, or just helping them grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe you've seen it at a church business meeting when maybe some dissenting options have been presented and, you know, this is getting a little uncomfortable and, you know, we're, we're just not agreeing on this. And then this godly person with the gift of wisdom is able to stand up and speak. And everybody thinks, you know, that really makes sense. <laughs> That's what we should do. That's what God wants us to do. Because they have spoken wisdom to the situation. In its essence, wisdom is the spiritual understanding of God's will. What God wants us to do, how he wants us to live. It's the ability to understand God's will and make an application to obedience. And that's the way the word wisdom is mostly used in the New Testament, to know God's will and to behave and respond to it. When we're going through trials and we're struggling and we wonder what we're supposed to do, what does James tell us what to do? But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so you, we can ask for wisdom, God will give it. So how do you know if somebody has wisdom? Or how do you know if somebody is wise? How do you know he makes wise decisions and his wisdom is made evident, James says, by his behavior? So James adds, in James chapter 3.13, Who among you is wise and understanding? 
who has wisdom, who understands these things, let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. So now these two passages show us that the main use of wisdom is to know that we know and behave in accordance with God's will. So what is the gift of wisdom? It is the Holy Spirit-given ability to show us the principles that we need to know and obey to fulfill God's will. Knowledge is the collection of the facts. Wisdom is the application so we can know and do God's will. So we need to know the, what the opposite of this is. You know that. The wisdom of the world is the opposite. So please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, to the 12th verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the 12th verse. In the second chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Paul is talking about the necessity of relying upon the Spirit of God. In everything that we say, in everything that we do, we are totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And in verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may, what? That we may know, that we may have the knowledge, the things freely given to us by God. The Holy Spirit is given to us that we might know, that we might have knowledge. And then in verse 13 he says, Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Or we could translate that interpreting spiritual things for spiritual men. So there is such a thing as human wisdom. And up in verse 6 in this second chapter, Paul refers to it as the wisdom of this age. He says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, or wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. The wisdom of the world, we could say, is the sum total of all human experiences. You touch a hot stove, and you learn that it's not wise to do that again. And if you have enough hot stove-type experiences, you're starting to gain some wisdom. So this doesn't mean that all the wisdom of the world is all bad. Man's wisdom and his intellect have made remarkable discoveries in mathematics, in science, in medical discoveries, in procedures, uh, marvelous discoveries related to our physical world on which every one of us here rely today for our physical health and well-being. But Paul says... This wisdom is passing away. It's transitory. Paul says the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age who use the wisdom of this age are passing away. And when Paul talks about the rulers of this age here, he's not talking about the God of this age, Satan and all his demons. He's talking about the earthly rulers of this age, the kings, the prime ministers, the, the presidents, and all of those. And he's saying... The earthly rulers are totally clueless. They don't get it at all. And they live and operate, they live and operate in a fog. If they're living outside of God's wisdom, they're, they're in this deep fog where they can't see anything. And they can't successfully na navigate through it. In other words, by human wisdom, they can't solve earthly problems at all. Not at all. And we see that man's wisdom fails. And it fails miserably when it comes to the purposes of God and understanding his ways. 
In fact, we see that in the parable of the landowner. Turn over to uh, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 20, verse 9. The 20th chapter of Luke's gospel, the ninth verse. Because the Lord Jesus, through a parable, shows us how human wisdom works. How it reasons and what it thinks. The conclusions it comes to. And so in verse 9 of Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And how dangerous is it to live by human wisdom? Verse 15, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Now one more incredible thing here before we we look at this a little bit more. The incredible thing is that those listening to Jesus tell the parable, he told them this parable, they didn't agree with Jesus' assessment of the situation. They said, no, it doesn't work that way. When they heard this, they said, may Ganata, may it never be. No way. Life doesn't work that way. Even the crowd questioned Jesus' parable. Talk about living in a fog. No, we would never. No, it just doesn't work that way. The sharecroppers reasoned with their minds that if they killed the son of the landowner, they would inherit the land themselves. I can't think of a single instance in any law in the creation, history of the world, that that was ever the case, that you kill somebody and you get the land that belonged to them. They used their knowledge of the situation, and by their own reasoning, through human wisdom, they came up with a perverted solution. What on earth are their perverted minds thinking? It made no sense to anyone except to themselves. And in what world does this make sense? It makes sense in this world, when people operate according to human wisdom. That's what the rulers of this age do. Go back to uh, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians again. The second chapter of 1 Corinthians in verse 8. Because Paul refers to this very thing. In verse 8 he says, God's wisdom is one which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if, not under, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers at the time, both Jewish and Gentile, condemned Christ to death because they operated and they functioned according to worldly human wisdom. So what we see in this, if you have the gift of the word of wisdom and you speak wisdom, the application of God's word, encouraging people to obey the word of God because that is what wisdom 
does, if that is your spiritual gift, then, like Jesus, people won't always agree with you. They won't always agree with you. Some will praise God for your wise counsel. But because all of us are still affected by the old sinful nature, the old man, your wisdom might infuriate others, and it's going to infuriate other people. They may even be aware that what you're saying is God's will, but your proposal might require a change in attitude or a change of lifestyle or a change of a lot of things. It, it may ask for them to control strong desires. There will be people who will become irritated with you, will accuse you of being judgmental or judging them. They will be forced to face the will of God if they may not accept it. But let me add this. That's from the negative side. One of the evidences that you have the gift of wisdom is that the Holy Spirit will give you a humble and gentle spirit in using your gift. James wrote in the third chapter, uh, verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. These characteristics in your life will result in God being glorified rather than you when others see your gift of wisdom in operation. And that brings us to the gift of discernment or distinguishing of spirits. And again, the, this is the gift that's mentioned in uh, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians where we read before uh, in verse 10. Paul writes that for one, a manifestation of the Spirit is given, and then he says in verse 10, to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits. The distinguishing of spirits. The Greek word translated distinguishing there is diochrisis, diochrisis. The root word is krino, which means to judge to make a, a separation, a, a distinction, to judge something and say, this is one thing and, and this, this is another. Uh, it means to judge or distinguish one thing from another. Now, like all the rest of the spiritual gifts, every born-again believer is to have a certain amount of discernment. We are to show mercy. If you go down through the list of the spiritual gifts, we as believers are called to to manifest every one of those in service and in our speaking and what we, we say and do. Uh, and so every believer is to have a certain amount of discernment, and this discernment increases as we grow in Christ, as we mature uh, in the Spirit. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 5, verses uh, 13 and 14 of the fifth chapter of Hebrews. In the fifth chapter of Hebrews, we see a contrast between what we could say the babe in Christ or the infant in Christ, uh, a new believer, and, and a mature believer. In verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 5, Paul, or the writer of the Hebrew writes, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. A spiritual infant, a babe in Christ, is not accustomed to the deeper truths. They cannot digest the deeper truths more than a physical infant can digest a beefsteak. 
The spiritual system, like the physical system, has to grow in order to handle that which is more difficult. A child can get something out of a picture book, but they can't get anything out of a, of a textbook. So the believer who has matured beyond using the milk of the word as a babe in Christ and taking in the deeper truths is able, to, the writer says here, to discern both good and evil. There's our word, diacresis, discern good and evil, to make a distinction between what is good and what is evil. And so the maturing believer is empowered by the Spirit of God through the Scriptures to tell the difference between good and what is evil. And beyond that, he or she, if they are mature, can distinguish between what is good and what is better. Remember when Jesus told Martha, who was all intent on serving, make sure everything was going right and was kind of grumpy about the whole thing, <laughs> and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, and Jesus said, Mary has chosen what? The better thing. There wasn't anything wrong with what Martha was doing. Her attitude was totally wrong. And later when Jesus was with them right before he went down into to Jerusalem, you know, and Mary uh, uh, took the alabaster vial and broke it and poured it over Jesus, and Jesus said, you anointed me for my, for my burial. Uh, even at that point, Martha, she was still serving but she was now doing the better thing and still serving what she had done the good thing before. So, so be discerning, we can even tell what's the difference between what is good and, and what is better. In other words, any born-again believer who chooses to focus on the Word of God is spiritually discerning. Based on their understanding and digestion of God's Word, they can see through the fog, they can see through the lies, they can see through the deception and untruths that are all over the place, and make a distinction of what is good and evil, and what is good and what is better. The basic idea of distinguishing has to do with separating out for examination in order to determine what is genuine and what is spurious. Satan is the great deceiver. He's the father of lies. And ever since the fall, he and his demons have counterfeited God's message throwing up a smokescreen, putting in just enough little truth where you kind of go, well, that kind of makes sense, and then they go off into this other stuff, but we're still going, well, what they said back here was right, but but what? What about this, this other stuff? But all Christians should judge carefully what we read and what we hear. As in where John exhorts in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is the responsibility of every one of us as believers, to test the spirit, discern what is good and what is evil. There are certain believers, however, who have the spiritual gift of distinguishing of spirits. The Holy Spirit is working in them through their giftedness, and that is, here's the definition of the distinguishing of spirits as a gift, the Holy Spirit given ability to distinguish between the truth of the Word of God and the deceptive doctrines propagated by demons. And you wonder, what in the world is the word demons even being in that kind of definition? Why would you include it in the description? Because that is where Scripture says these deceptive, dangerous doctrines come from. 
Paul said to Timothy, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience with a branding iron. So we're all exhorted to be spiritually discerning, but some in the body of Christ have been given the unique ability to spot these doctrinal forgeries right off the bat that have plagued the church ever since the first century. And this discernment does not involve mystical or extra-biblical revelations or a voice from God, but the spiritually discerning through the Spirit of God and because they have studied God's Word, they are so familiar with God's Word that they instantly recognize what is contrary to it. You've probably heard this before, you know. How do they train people to... Uh, bank tellers to recognize counterfeit money. They handle real money day after day, day after day. They hold it up to the light. You know, they do all these things. And so when the counterfeit comes across, they know it's counterfeit immediately if they're experienced in, in spotting it. And it's the same way with things spiritually. Uh, those with uh, the gift of discerning of spirits, the they're, they're so familiar with God's Word, and they're familiar with what other cults and other things, you know, prophets, false teachers are, are teaching that they're, you know, they, they just spot it immediately through the Holy Spirit of God. They don't receive special messages of God that say, oh, this is wrong, you know, you should be, watch out for that. You know, but the Holy Spirit does prompt us in that way, doesn't he, at times, all of us. You know, we, we get that check in our spirit or the Holy Spirit leads us to talk to somebody or do something in a particular way. But, but it's all, we, we test the spirits and we test even those things by going back to the Word of God and saying, yeah, that, that's good. So many believers who have the gift of distinguishing of spirits will be active in what we call Christian apologetics. Apologetics. The word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia when we get our word apology. But it doesn't mean to apologize for something as we use it in English. We, we've totally misused the Greek word. It literally means to give a defense, to give a defense. We're not apologizing for what we believe. We are defending it. Uh, so turn over to First uh, Peter, Peter's first letter, chapter 3, verse 15. In the third chapter of Peter's first letter, we find the key passage that pertains to apologetics. That every believer is required by God to be able to give a defense. And he says in verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, make an apologia to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Boy, that's convicting. Gentle and, and reverence. I've, I've done it both ways. Haven't you? Taking the sword of the spirit of the word of God and that poor young man who's sitting in your living room, you just hack him up one way and down the other with, with biblical truth, and then he leaves just hacked up and beat up. <laughs> we, we've never given him the hope, and that's what we're required to do. But here, Peter is saying, you know, there really is no excuse for a Christian to be completely unable to defend his or her faith using the word of God. Every one of us as Christians should be able to give a reasonable presentation with gentleness and reverence of our faith in Jesus Christ. No, not every Christian needs to be an expert in apologetics, but every one of us as believers should know what we believe, 
why I believe it, how I'm going to share it with others, and how to defend it against lies and attacks. But those who have the gift, the spiritual gift of the discerning of spirits, are empowered by the Holy Spirit to take the Word of God and compare it with the false doctrines and teachings and take that and compare it with specific passages from the Bible in a way to refute the false doctrine and defend the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And they write helpful books, like the people with the gift of knowledge. They write helpful books and resources on the cults and the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, Dr. Walter Martins, who, who was known as the Bible Answer Man on, on Christian radio, uh, wrote The Kingdom of the Cults, uh, a classic work in apologetics that, that takes the Word of God and takes all the, the main cults at the time that uh, he was writing and, and compares it with Scripture. Another apologist was Dr. Norman Geisler, who wrote over 100 books on apologetics and systematic theology. Uh, he also had the gift of knowledge, I would say. One of his books is called When Skeptics Ask, How Do You Answer What a Skeptic Says? You ever wondered about that? You know, somebody will say something, yeah, but the Bible, or, you know, how do, how do you, <laughs> I tried to think of one, you know, the, the one they like to use, you know, if God made a rock so big that he couldn't lift, could he lift it? You know, and you go, Huh? <laughs> you know, and they come up with all these things that human wisdom says, but they confuse us. And so when skeptics ask, you know, there's, there's the answer to those kind of things. And another one that uh, Dr. Geisler wrote was simply called Christian Apologetics. You know, I was reading an article of Christian leaders who passed away this, this last year, and uh, three of them that I picked out that I appreciate, I go, that, that, that's really something about what I'm preaching about today because... Uh, Warren Wiersbe passed away last year, you know, and I've quoted him a lot. And I would say Warren Wiersbe had the gift of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, Lloyd John Ogilvy, Lloyd, yeah, I haven't quite got that right. Uh, he was uh, at a Presbyterian, or a, yeah, Presbyterian, Hollywood Presbyterian Church for a long time. He was chaplain of the Senate for, for many years. Lloyd John Ogilvy, yeah, I've got it right now. You know, he definitely had the gift of wisdom and brought that wisdom uh, to the Senate. And Dr. Norman Geisler passed away this last year, who had the gift of discerning uh, of spirits. And so these are the guys whose, their works are indispensable if you want to be involved in apologetics, if you want to learn how to witness to your, your Mormon neighbor or somebody who's a Jehovah Witness or, or, or those kind of things. They, 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 they tell us and show us how to do that because they, they had the gift. But like all the spiritual gifts, there are all kinds of different ways the gift of distinguishing of spirits is manifested. Once again, it belongs to people who are here in our church family. Maybe you've never been to college, you've never been to seminary, but you have that special ability to ascertain and expose false doctrine. You know, sometimes you'll get a, a thing in your spirit and you go, that just doesn't sound right. And you get back into God's word and you go, yeah. <laughs> or you look at what they're teaching and you go, that, that's just not right. And you have that ability to expose the error using God's word. And you all are a valuable asset to us as a church in saying through the fog. For those of us who are following taillights way too close, <laughs> you say, no, that's, that's not right. That's, that's wrong. Don't, don't do that. That's knowledge, wisdom, and the gift of discernment in that example. And, and you protect the church and the church family by having that special ability 
to recognize lying spirits. And we live in a day when many ideas are promoted and they're passed off as being scriptural. They're passed off as being this is right and this is wrong. And one of the sad things in our day is if you Google discerning ministries and then see all these ministries that claim to be discernment ministries, 99% of them are teaching false doctrine. And all they're doing is chastising and criticizing other Christians and what they teach and stuff. And they're damaging the body of Christ. And so don't, don't Google discernment ministries. You know, just, just don't do that. You know, but uh, there is just so much stuff out there today that's, that, that, that really is scary. And we're dependent upon those who have the gift of discernment of spirits. And I'm just going to close with uh, what John MacArthur said, and he put it this way. Those with the gift of discernment are the Holy Spirit's inspectors his counterfeit experts to whom he gives special insight and understanding. And we are thankful for each one and thankful for your gift. Shall we pray? Father, once again, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the way that you have worked and do work in each one of us, giving each one of us a spiritual gift to serve the body of Christ to speak the utterances of God. And Father, I pray as we learn and grow and, and live and each one of us in the area of our giftedness, Father, that we will more and more discover and know that purpose, that plan that you have for each one of us, that place that uh, gives us fulfillment and joy and even a wonder of what you do as we serve one another in Christ's name. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.